If you love this podcast and love easy and informative CEUs, then this is the deal for you. SpeechTherapyPD.com has over 175 hours of pod courses on demand with an average of 19 new pod courses released each month. You can get ASHA continuing ed credit for every episode you listen to. And because I think you're terrific, I can offer $20 off a year's subscription when you use my code SUP20 for the insanely low rate of $59. On today's edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast, I'm interviewing Reva Bearwall, an innovator, prosthodontist, French culinary chef, clinical assistant professor, CEO, and all-around incredible woman. While rebuilding people's mouths as a prosthodontist, Reva realized there was a need for a transitional food that would provide the texture of a regular consistency, like ITSE Level 7, and melt to a puree, or ITSE Level 4. So the cross-discipline collaboration began, and we have the Savories product as a result. Today's episode is meant to introduce us to a variety of concepts regarding nutrition and snacking in adults with dysphagia, and also discuss how Rava's product can meet the needs of many of our patients with dysphagia. I am Leanne Porter, your host, and I love interviewing innovators who are bringing new ideas to the table. Hi, how's it going? It's going great. How about you? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. Reva, it's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Um, I'm really pumped to learn more about Savories, um, a meltable product, and also so much more that you're working on with your company. So before I jump the gun, go ahead and tell our audience a little bit more about your background, what it is you do, and what you're doing now. Well, um, gosh, you know, I've been doing what I do for so long now. This is like this new product has just um, changed my world, I guess. And um, entering the the world of SLPs has changed my world. Uh, I could say that things started about six years ago in my private practice. I do full mouth reconstruction. I'm what you call a prosthodontist, which uh, is a mouthful to say someone who does reconstruction work, uh, dealing with patients with multiple missing teeth and other disabilities that limit them from from good uh, function, as well as aesthetics. And I work with surgeons to take care of that. Within that world of mine, I have come across people with head and neck cancer, and I have reconstructed their mouths so that they can function again. And in that experience, you end up talking a lot with your patients. It could be two years before you're done. And and it's just a, an evolution of understanding the deeper problems that exist for them after they're in remission. And I think what I hear very often is, you know, I was helped a lot during the active phases of treatment, but now that I'm quote unquote cured and I'm now moving on to the next phases, it's my, I have to accept a new normal of eating, a new, a new who I am with dysphagia. And there I said, wait a minute here, I'm a dentist and I'm a specialist and yet I don't know very much about dysphagia. And yet I'm creating teeth that can function and can help them with chewing. But if they can't swallow, then there is a disconnect between my skill set and an SLP skill set. So how can I learn more? And that's when it all started. And I started to do a lot of research. I started to really understand what were the problems that the SLPs were seeing? Was it just this one patient who is saying, you know, she's dissatisfied with her food options. She can't eat a normal diet. She's left with this chronic issue for the rest of her life. Um, there's no, there's, there's this, that, and the other that she was describing, but it did resonate with SLPs and it did resonate with MDs and geriatricians, people, um, RDs that were focused in this area um, and that's kind of where it started with that and then studies of craving and what, what it is that they crave, um, really understanding what's available to them and what it is that they want. So you talked about learning more about what people crave. 
what do people crave? Like, I know what I crave, salty snacks. I love them, give it to me. Like, what'd you learn in your research? I learned that we're kind of wrong about our impression or this um, idea that as we get older, we like sweet foods. I think that I've heard that over and over again, that the um, older adult population prefers sweet. And I think that that could very well be uh, increased proportion as you get older. But what it takes away from is the fact that we as human beings might have flavor preferences and changes with age, but we always want choice. Mm. We always want options available to us, no matter what stage of life we are in or what chronic condition we're facing. And so in realizing that, that was one thing that really, I guess it created a little bit of a disturbance in my brain because then I, I would assume that with craving, asking people what they crave when they do have dysphagia. So I went to Parkinson's support groups and head and neck cancer support groups. And I'm like, what, what, what do you crave? And it wasn't, I crave ice cream. I crave a sweet shake. Um, sometimes it was, I crave cookies. Mm -hmm. yeah. part, it was, I crave popcorn. I crave uh, crackers. I crave um, pretzels. And you're right. It was the salty. And me, I was just like, that's me. I crave salt and vinegar chips all the time. <laughs> so I was, I was just kind of projecting myself forward and saying, you know, that's what I would really miss. And these people are saying the same thing. So I think what craving means is it's closely tied to denial, isn't it? So you have or isn't available. Exactly. It's also closely tied, tied to cultural preferences and our history with food, um, where, where do we go for comfort? You know, uh, when we're sick, where, where do we go? And, and I think there's more studies that need to go in that realm because understanding where craving comes from and dysphagia and, you know, what happens as far as how do we create and adapt foods to approach those cravings is our answer to quality of life through food enjoyment, our answer to preventing malnutrition. So, yeah. I'm like here for this. This is hitting all the right buttons. Like, yes, yes, yes. Like <laughs> it's about quality of life. It's about making sure people can enjoy what they've always enjoyed um, without causing any risk or harm to airway patency um, or malnutrition or dehydration. Like these are all things that are at risk when we start telling people what they can and can't eat for their own safety. So exactly. Yep. Yep. And also I, I really think if you kind of sub analyze craving, is it craving of taste or is it craving of texture? And those are two very different things. Right. And, and I, I have a PhD student who's studying this with savories crackers and and these transitional foods, uh, because what we're what we're thinking is that some people might have cravings or feel denied more with taste, um, and some with texture. And is it what's important to them beforehand? So we have people that um, crunch and love that crunchy textures, and they chew, and that's kind of their behavior style. And then there's some people that kind of smush their foods or, or they're sucking on their foods. And that is a behavior that starts from when they're kids. And so if you look at dysphagia and what it leads to is more of a puree diet or texture modified diet, then you're taking, I think specifically the crunchers and the chewers, and they're going to crave perhaps more than the people that prefer those softer textures already. So that's even a deeper dive into craving and how maybe people are differentiated in a, in a very interesting way. Yeah. And so what's so interesting about the savories cracker is that from my limited knowledge, so please like 
clear, like steer me in the right direction, but it provides that, that crunch sensation. So they're like kind of meeting that craving need, but it's a meltable. So it kind of melts down to more of a soft, like puree style without them having to chew. Is that correct? That's, that's totally correct. We did, um, uh, studies of transitional foods, which is what the cracker fits within. Um, we have dips as well that go with it because I wanted crackers and dip, which is like an American snacking pastime. Um, and so the crackers do crunch and dissolve in the mouth. And in, in the study that we did in five seconds with minimal tongue pressure, I used an IOP bulb and I measured um, tongue pressure force and tried to get it to be approximately 17 kilopascals, which is the, the thumb pressure with a fork test for the ITSY fork test. So I said, hey, can I, can I somehow mimic that fork pressure test in the mouth? Because what happens in the mouth is critical for dissolution of foods, for how foods dissolve. We can't accurately measure that on a table with water. Mouth is a completely different environment. So how can I get that same pressure? So I did tongue training for individuals in, uh, in the older age bracket. And what I showed was that in five seconds with moderate tongue pressure, which is 17 kilopascals, um, the savory's crackers would dissolve in five seconds. So it was just like truly a dissolvable product. Um, you know, in 12 seconds, it dissolved, you know, tongue, you didn't have to pulse your tongue pressure. It was just like moderate tongue pressure. And in people who didn't apply any tongue pressure, they just closed their mouth on it. No chewing, no nothing. Um, it was like 80% dissolved in five seconds. So you can really understand the properties of transitional foods. And we looked at dry mouth versus normal saliva too. And what, what we did look at was like, all these foods that are classified as transitional foods, they don't all behave the same. So when you're saying, you know, when I was at ASHA and I, I had, you know, I launched the product line in November, 2019, people were saying, this is a true meltable. And I didn't, I didn't really understand, you know, I, I had never used that terminology and, and really it became very clear to me with these studies, what what people are being described as meltable, even in the pediatric space, might not actually be truly meltable in a in a time frame, which is a normal time frame for chewing or swallowing in the mouth. And uh, yeah, so so that's kind of uh, the, the 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 long and short of the cracker and how quickly it dissolves. I like that. I, I really appreciate you really breaking it down and showing kind of the science behind it and the time frame, and that you even looked at the pressures. Like, would it, if you just sat there or like, what, what about medium pressure? I feel like that's really applicable to our stroke population who may have um, weakness on one side or the other. And so it's not going to be an even distribution. So if they don't have the same amount of strength and it's on their weaker side, like, Will it still work out? And so it's really nice to know that while they're in the recovery stage as well, and you know, hopefully they'll see improvements over their recovery timeframe, there's still something that they can enjoy and get that texture craving with. So I feel like it's got so much applications to people with um, like progressive neurological disease patterns where this could really meet a lot of those cravings over a long-term period. And it's also like, for short-term use too. Like maybe you can get back to like the crackers that are on the shelves in the grocery store, but maybe those aren't a good idea for you right now. Here's a, <laughs> here's a right now solution. <laughs> exactly. I mean, someone, someone said, well, you don't want patients to eat your crackers and think they're okay to have Triscuits. And I'm like, no, well, I mean, that happens right now with liquid supplements. People don't go to Dairy Queen and say, I can have a milkshake if they're given a liquid supplement, you know, like there is, there is definite, um, there is definite knowledge that I'm trying to share with SLPs that this product is really SLP driven. Um, it's really about, you know, understanding that it's evidence-based um, we did studies in uh, Dr. Samantha Shoon, who uh, really is focused on caregiver burden. She's also focused on dignity and dining and the dining experience, did a study using savories in nursing homes. And just really sharing that 
that people just want to have more choices. They want to have um, more snacks. They want to have more diversity and flavors that everything shouldn't be sweet. And in looking at the snack curve, the majority of foods are sweet. Then if you looked at the dysphagia population, 50% of the snacks on the snack cart, they can't even eat. So, you know, and then you take a diabetic with dysphagia. Now you're even narrowing it further. And so I really felt like the crackers that we have, the food that we have needs to address the issue of being on a specialized diet whether you're on a texture modified diet, whether you're on a food modified restricted diet, why can't we all eat the same thing? And that's what the, that's what Savories does is it makes it accessible to people with diabetes, accessible to people with uh, renal disease, heart disease, dysphagia, uh, gluten intolerance, um, you know, and low glycemic foods. So, so I just want everyone to have a seat at the table and to be able to enjoy that social aspect of eating that so often is missed or denied from individuals such as these. So that's great. I say there's a, a big hole that needs to be filled with this. So yay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, like just what you mentioned all the different kinds of diets or restrictions based on like gluten, renal, diabetic, all those things, um, making sure that they have access to snacks as well. Like, I feel like to account for all of those things took a ton of work. So you, I think you mentioned in the beginning, you had this idea or began on this journey. Was it six years ago? Yeah, it's about six years now, so it's getting there. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it's taken six years now. Tell me a little bit more about the time frame from idea to like launching the product because it's been out now. Like it's it's available to purchase. Yeah, no tomorrow. Yeah. So, how long did it take just for that growing phase and launching phase? Yeah. So I think I did something that, you know, what I realized was I couldn't problem solve this on my own. The problem was too big and there was too many different facets to the problem. And if I wanted to create a universal solution, I needed help. So I brought together people with dysphagia, um, registered dietitians, SLPs, um, geriatricians, uh, culinary chefs and food scientists. And we would innovate once a month for two years. And what we were trying to do is look at it from the RD's perspective. They're, they wanted to look at the, the fat content, the protein content, the calories, and we needed to make it calorie dense, protein dense. The other part was the texture, which we talked about, like we needed to look at preferences and and what, what the SLBs would regard as a true multiple product. And we didn't use that terminology, but essentially that's what we're looking for. We're looking for the texture of that food memory of that crunch, but then something that would dissolve instantly in the mouth to puree. That was our goal. Mm -hmm. And then the food scientists and the chefs, we were all about taste, right? So we were trying to look at cultural preferences of the, the, the people that had dysphagia that were part of the um, group, what was their history with food? What were the moments in their lives where they really felt that texture, uh, being depraved of that texture? And sometimes it was, it was always a social setting. I would go to a restaurant with friends and I couldn't eat anything on the menu. And if I could pull something out of my purse that I could eat and I wouldn't have to fake eat, that would make my eating experience better. I am with my grandchildren and I'm watching a movie and they're having popcorn and I have to have my pudding. If I could eat socially with them and be, that would improve that whole experience, which food is just a part of that experience. So how do I make that experience more holistic um, and, and in a positive way? And so all of those things come to taste and our food memory and 
Um, you know, how do we combine ingredients in order to deliver on that and at the same time meet the needs of the RD, you know, of, of, of having the right balance. And so all the Savory's products are using plant-based protein. It's all using vegetables that people commonly, when it's pureed, won't eat like peas and carrots and things that just mush on the plate. How do we get that to still get into them in a flavorful and texture positive way? And uh, so my crackers are predominantly vegetable crackers and they have, you know, um, like carrot puree or jicama juice concentrate or um, pea puree, onion puree, squash, golden delicious pumpkin puree. Why? Um, I didn't want sugar. I'm a dentist and I was like, you know, my head and neck cancer patients are going to eat sugar and they're going to have cavities because they have less saliva. Is it just my head and neck cancer? No, many, many people on multi, uh, on polypharmacy have low levels of saliva and yet we are constantly giving them sugar, you know, and sugar is just not the answer from, um, you know, from standpoints of healthy snacking. You know, it's really not the answer that I was looking for for my patients. Um, and, and we know that snacking is a habit that we need to encourage. When the adult population, the older adult population, aren't snacking the same as our younger populations, but they're eating less at their main meals. So why not look at that and say, let's give you calorie dense, but flavorful and, and, you know, memory, positive memory, encouraging foods, um, in the interim meal period. And let's get your protein up. Let's prevent malnutrition and all that can be achieved. I think, um, with a little bit of effort. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I have another question. Um, how did you, once you guys had kind of formulated a product and what it would look like and what it would taste like and what it would be made of, how did you go about testing it with, you know, real life people who it was aimed for? And did you need to get um, like approval from a body when we typically need to do research? We have to go through the IR, is it IRFB or IRF or IRB, IRB. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's institutional review board. So um, I did a study with Oregon State University and University of Oregon, and both have IRBs. So we went through that IRB process. Um, I also did one in Salem Hospital in the neurotrauma unit, and we did an IRB, which was within Salem Hospital. So, so yeah, I mean, it's an important step um, when you're doing research on people that you follow an IRB protocol and you get it approved and, um, and you, um, then you can kind of uh, collect your data and actually um, you, analyze it and publish it. So, so that's kind of, uh, that, that is exactly what you need to do. I, I, I did... I did do these surveys. I would go to the Parkinson's uh, foundation walk and I would just ask people, you know, what do you think? What's your favorite flavor? What about the packaging? I mean, packaging is really key as well. Um, I would go to Oregon speech and hearing association and I would have people sample it there. I would go to the Oregon health and healthcare Alliance and have people sample it there. So there was sampling going on, but then the true data collection and understanding of the product and how it behaves and how it compares to other products was done in research that, you know, hopefully will be published, um, this year. Okay, so, good. Yeah. Yeah. I feel, I feel that SLPs deserve just like all clinicians deserve evidence to support what we're providing to people. And I think food in general needs to have, when we're dealing with specific areas of concern needs to have more research behind it. We just can't bring something to the market without true knowledge of, of a lot of different parameters about it. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I, 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 I like what you said about therapy because um, you were talking about aphasia and um, in stroke patients and dysphagia and stroke patients and the unilateral aspect of eating and like a, you know, an atrophic side perhaps, you know, with, with disuse versus their, um, their opposite side. And 
The thing I love about the idea of a solid food that they can pick up with two finger grasp and they can put in their mouth is that it's therapy to be able to bite and to use your muscles of mastication, yet it dissolves instantly. So it can help with that muscle coordination, that muscle strengthening, and yet it doesn't need to be chewed. You know, so it's it's that nice balance that um, you know, if you think of brain stimulation too, with chewing, you're actually stimulating the brain and there's studies on that. So if we can, if we can look at, look at what we're offering and, and create more therapy behind it, I think there's more strength in that is in our knowledge base of how foods actually behave in the body. Yes. Yeah. That's huge. And I think, you know, we're so well-trained on, the textures of food and how that affects patients with dysphagia, but not necessarily nutritional content and then groups of food that would be really appropriate in the adult setting. Um, I think we get a little bit more of that for our SLPs who work on feeding with pediatrics. I think that's much more tied to it. Um, But with adults, I feel like we really shortchange ourselves or we're just like, well, that's the dietitian's work, which it totally is a hundred percent. But at the same time, like, you know, I work in outpatient and our facility doesn't have like an outpatient dietitian there to go over things with folks all the time. So I try to like bring them in and, and set up those meetings when I can. But at the same time, if there was just more knowledge about that kind of with this. And so I feel like you've done that. You've, you've created a product that has already looked at that aspect of nutrition and calorie count and protein, and then it meets our needs. So we can say, Hey, you know, here's a good option that will help you maintain your nutrition as you're working through your dysphagia as Mm -hmm. some kind of symptom of whatever it is you're going through, because yeah, there's so many different ways somebody could be experiencing dysphagia. Yeah, I I think I'm I'm with you on the outpatient. I I I I am trying to understand the patient journey, and when they go from acute care, what how can we provide an experience for them that's guided by the SLP, where the SLP can use this as a screening tool. Can someone have transitional foods? Can you know? Can they self eat? Can they eat on their own? You know, things that are within the purview of concern at that stage of development, then when they go to a skilled nursing facility, can we still offer the food and have it be more of a therapeutic food? And the crackers and dip together equals, you know, the protein and calorie of a, of a liquid supplement. So can the RD be happy with that? And yet the SLP is in charge of therapy and looking at food enjoyment as being, you know, maybe they'll do their therapy more in their room. Maybe the RD will have them have some crackers and dip and they're the, it's like a physical therapist. They're doing, they're doing therapy without being in a session with the SLP. And in that, in that aspect, they're, they're perhaps, perhaps reducing therapy time. You know, that's just a question that I have. Um, And then when they go home, they have discharge notes. It's overwhelming. Like sometimes it's, and you probably know this as well. It, it can be daunting for the family and for the caregiver. So could could there be an identifiable snack that they could have at home that's shelf stable for six months and they can just go in there, grab the crackers and dip when they're focusing on breakfast, lunch and dinner and preparation for a dysphagia diet? Is there something that's readily accessible that can satisfy their protein needs or calorie needs and prevent malnutrition. So that's the true tie-in I see for SLPs and RDs and how the two, I mean, to me, I think it's a close interplay between between, uh, both parties. And yet you just described it perfectly. I don't, sometimes the SLPs and RDs are not interfacing regularly. They don't have FaceTime because you're so busy. <laughs> and I, and yet you're dealing with, oftentimes you're dealing with aspects of nutrition, right? So. Yeah. All right. So my next one is um, kind of tying into that. Like, you know, I'll have patients come in or I'll be meeting with someone and, and they're seniors. And so these are just like, 
anecdotal reports, but they'll be like, I just don't eat as much as I used to. And I feel like that's just a part of aging, but like, I don't like, I haven't studied this. This isn't coming from like any like clear educational stance. Um, in, in your research and what you've done to create this product um, and, and working with the RDs, like, do they talk about like a, a change in the, in the amount of calories or the frequency of eating and the metabolism rate of our elderly population? Um, can you shed any light on that area? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, Van, Van Tara Prast, I apologize if I got that um, author wrong, but um, they did a study looking at caloric intake. And yes, as, as you get older, the caloric intake goes down. If you're talking about ALS, I mean, they go into hypermetabolism. And so they're burning calories really fast. And there's considerable discussion about being on a keto diet and high protein, high fat um, to help um, with, um, uh, you know, um, length of life. So I think, um, you know, when I look at, um, at, at, at the elder population, I would say that they, they tend to, um, eat less for sure. They eat less at each meal. There's more fatigue with eating, especially with dysphagia. So is it, is it that they really are not hungry? I think that's a big element of it, but is it deeper than that? Is it the preparation time required to make their specialized meal? Um, is it the access to food, uh, going to that grocery store and getting the products that they need and, and making it at home? Uh, that can be daunting sometimes. And I just wonder if it's simpler to have a single meal or two meals a day. And what I think that I, I should ask your opinion, but I think if you had more ready-made foods that they could eat when they're hungry, instead of going from that history of eating like a solid big breakfast or a big lunch, if we ate more when we were hungry, I think that that would be better for caloric intake and maintenance of glycemic control and, you know, just healthier eating lifestyle. So, so I, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question, but I, I do think that it's multifaceted and I, and I, and I think that we should be asking older people that, that question, like, why are you eating a single meal a day or just two meals a day? And it, it, it might not just be preference. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. I don't think I've really tried to dig into that because, you know, they just tell me, oh, I just eat two meals a day. And the way they say it, it, it kind of makes it sound like that it is their preference, but maybe they've made it their preference because of other factors that I haven't asked or been aware of in the past. So now I'm really curious and I'm <laughs> I'm going to start digging into everybody be like, how many times a day do you eat? Why? Tell Leanne everything. Like, <laughs> Well, I wonder, I mean, I, I would ask you, like, if, if you and I, if you were on a texture modified diet, like if we tried to put ourselves in their shoes and we were asked, how many times do you want to eat this texture modified diet? And, but you can't eat anything else. You have to have a texture modified diet. Would we... It is the emotional component of food enjoyment tied into the number of times that we're eating. And if we're eating because we have to eat, does that make our desire to eat less? So, I mean, if I put myself, this is what I kept on doing with my innovation. I kept on putting myself in their shoes. Yeah. I'm just trying to figure it out. And it's hard to do because, you know, you're not there you can easily grab whatever you want to eat. But, but I, I do think that that, I mean, that's my perspective. I, I, I don't know what you're an SLP and you probably have much more experience with people with dysphagia, but I, I just kind of ponder on that sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. And outpatient, when I get folks, when they're at home and they're having to figure out how to, you know, eat food that, matches 
what they've been recommended and they struggle. I remember I had this one patient who loved food, big surprise, right? (laughs) Somebody who loves food and enjoyed cooking. Um, And as a result of um, cancer, they weren't able to eat anything really above a very runny puree. Mm -hmm. So it impacted them on so many different levels because then they didn't feel like they could cook anymore because they'd have to make a separate meal for their spouse and then something for them. So it interfered in like so many more ways than just them getting the nutrition that they needed. That was a big part of it as well. Um, So, yeah. And then I just think like if they had access to options um, that were available that they didn't have to necessarily generate on their own by putting something that they'd made into a blender and then trying to mix in other things to get it to the right consistency while still maintaining good taste and nutritional value. You know, it's asking people to suddenly become dietitians and chefs and (laughs) when all they're trying to do is manage their dysphagia. So what do you think about um, caregiver burden of um, having it's not just the burden of the physical aspect of making the food, but what about the emotional aspect, which I think is also a burden of, of the person that you're preparing these foods for, and you're spending all these hours in the kitchen to make this modified texture diet, and then they don't like it. They don't eat it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that happens, but that just kind of comes in my brain. Like, like there is that emotional piece to food, which if food, if we're going to call it a social activity, um, even food preparation can be a social activity and, and, you know, satisfaction has to be for the caregiver as well as a person who's suffering from dysphagia. Yeah. Yeah. It's big. Um, I really liked the phrase of, someone you mentioned earlier in the podcast who was doing research on dignity and dining. And, you know, that's in public settings when somebody is in um, a skilled nursing facility, like long-term or something like that, but it's in the home with your loved ones as well, or it's in a restaurant out in public as well. And uh, yeah, I think we take it for granted how challenging it can be not only for the person, but for the caregiver as well to get back in and enjoy all the activities that they're used to and overcome a lot of obstacles. You know, another one that we haven't really touched on yet, um, we've touched on like access to foods, access to calorie rich food, and then the tools with which to modify it if they're at home on their own, like having a blender, you know, somebody just might not have a blender. Right, right, right. (laughs) Another one would be um, cost. And so can they afford, if there are options on the market, can they afford to buy pre-made things? Would they be the same as doing the work to alter things for themselves too? So there's just like so many things at play. Yeah, I can I can share with you that to create a true meltable product at home is really hard to do. It is it's definitely um, into the realm of um, food science and understanding how foods work. So, but, but yeah, I think that cost is a big factor and my heart was always set on trying to make things affordable. And I tried to look at what are these ready-made foods and, you know, what are the price points of these foods? And I tried to find myself somewhere in the middle of that, even though it was a brand new product and, um, there's a lot that goes into that. It, it just seemed like, how do I make this accessible to people, uh, not only in facilities, but at home and again, trying to follow them so that facilities could offer it to the patients, but then they could go home and continue on that same regimen of, of eating. Um, so I, I think you're right. I think access to food, understanding, finding the right cookbooks, um, doing what's, what's required to get the right texture. And as you know, with ITZY, you know, getting that texture, right. I feel, I feel like that's a big burden on that person. They, 
just imagine their fear of getting the texture wrong and their loved one choking because they prepared the food for them, but they didn't get it right. And I think that uh, someone in facility, um, a, a chef, shared that with me on his first few years of working in this memory care facility. He, he was worried he was going to kill somebody. <laughs> he was just so worried. He's like, I don't know how to, you know, gauge this texture. Is it the right texture? Am I doing this right with this, you know, puree pizza that I'm making? And, and I can understand if that's coming from a person trained in food, how that could be translated to someone at home without that training. So... Mm -hmm. um oh gosh I had a thought oh it, it came back oh thank goodness because I was like I really want to ask this question <laughs> earlier you talked about when you were doing research on flavors and texture you really wanted to look at like what was important to people and like a cultural aspect so can you dive in a little bit more into that like how you decided on flavors, for example, and representing like cultures, I'm, I'm guessing like you kind of just canvas like what we have in the US and yeah, yeah, I, I think uh, there's so many different areas to go in with that. But I, I looked at some of the Medicare requirements for snacking, and they were saying that now we need to have more ethnic diversity. And I just was like, yes, ethnic diversity is so important. And there's studies done on uh, the Chinese population where in the nursing home, they wanted to address that cultural preference for having tea. Well, the way that they have tea is a very specific way and they're, they're, they didn't mimic it just right. And so it didn't resonate with them. So I had uh, Ernie was uh, a head and neck cancer patient that helped me formulate, he was Cuban. He helped me formulate the Cuban black bean dip. And he took his recipe and we modified his recipe so that we could create something that had the, the profile of flavors that we could safely call it a Cuban black bean dip. Um, the hummus dip that we had was another one. Like everyone has heard of hummus dip. But actually in the older population, a lot of people don't know what hummus is. But if we take, you know, um, a Middle Eastern person living in the U.S., guaranteed, you know, no matter what age they're in, they know what hummus is. And there is something great about hummus is that you can have protein in there, you can have fiber in there, you can have oil, olive oil, healthy oils for them. And yet I figured out a way to make it shelf stable and to make it a puree consistency, puree level four. So now they've got something that reaches some degree of ethnic diversity in their food offerings, which is an area we really need to focus on. And and yet it fits within the ITSE requirements. So I went to Florida and they said, you need to make a gravy dip. And I'm like, okay, so now we're working on a, on a gravy dip to go with my chicken crackers. Cause chicken and gravy is like, like, it's just like, uh, I don't right. know. It's soul like, food, right? It's like, and, um, and then, uh, we're making a ranch dip. And the ranch dip is again, like if you're going to have a vegetable cracker, you better well have a ranch dip. So we, so we're like, okay, we're on it. So, um, so I'm really hearing responses from not only SLPs and dietitians, but actually people with dysphagia trying to say, if I can approach your cravings for cultural diversity, for, you know, regional diversity across the U S let's start there. Let's just have fun with it. Let's play with it, but let's make it accessible to you and let's make it, you know, shelf stable. So you might not want to eat it now. You might want to eat it later. Great. Um, let's make it something that you can graze on, watch TV and slow eat because that's what you're into right now. Let's make it that way and let's make it not taste bad and cold, you know, like they're hot purees. Let's make it fun and just enjoyable over a movie. So, mm-hmm. That's awesome. Okay. So, um, also earlier, you kind of mentioned popcorn, like, you know, people really crave popcorn. So have you gotten into that? Yeah, it's, it's actually a super tough thing to do. And, um, 
we spent a lot of time on that um, on that product, but um, I think that's kind of like the holy grail <laughs> for dysphagia is like, can you make something that is truly uh, popcorn or popcorn flavored that is a meltable? product um it's just hits so many different points and um and so i think that is that is uh i i, I would say tbd is to be determined but we are, are we are working our way towards that goal and uh, we also have a soup line that you know it's 200 calories and 13 grams of protein in six ounces so they're getting the flavors of nurturing soups which you know from dr shun's study these soups reminded them of what their grandmother used to make for them and again bringing back food memory to what they're eating but making it really accessible and ready to eat um, no matter where they are so so yeah there's there's lots there's lots of fun to be had i'm telling you it's just it's just great and i i think that the biggest thing is just keeping my ears open to what people want and trying to figure out a way and working like you were describing it's all about collaboration it's all about having um slps who are engaged with this who see the need and want to be involved with dietitians that feel the same way, with providing a place for people to get together and really innovate and think about solutions together. That's awesome. I love that. Collaboration is like my favorite word. <laughs> <laughs> it's so important. It's uh, challenging to do because uh, I... I hated group work in school and that's collaboration. And, you know, teachers and professors are always like, got to learn how to do it now, because if you want to accomplish anything in life, it's group work in adulthood. We call it collaboration now. So, yeah, it's great. And uh, clearly I have a love hate relationship with it, but it is so important and so necessary. So I love hearing success stories about such amazing, like, cross-discipline collaboration. That's really awesome to see. Um, okay. So in wrapping up, I kind of want to quickly touch on this in a very kind of like explicit way. So can you describe an ideal patient for a transitional food, such as the savories cracker? Mm -hmm. So uh, right now, transitional foods are foods that go from one from a solid texture or from one texture and in the presence of moisture or heat transition. And so if you go to the ITSI uh, inverse pyramid, you'll see it off to the side and transitional foods can start at level seven, um, which is a regular food, which is exactly what the crackers are. And they can go down to, uh, in my case, to a level five or a level four, depending on how much time, you know, what I talked about having a little bit of pressure on it uh, with the tongue in five seconds, it goes down to a level four. Okay. So it can go down to um, minced moist level five or puree level four in a person. But that's not the same for all transitional foods. So that's why I think it lies with the SLPs to test it in your patient and see where it goes because there, you know, there could be person to person variability. But in general, um, I feel very confident that that transition state goes from seven to five or seven to four with the crackers. So I don't know if that answers your question, but but with the dip, it just, you know, it dissolves equally as, you know, like there's the dip is a lubrication. So I did that not only because it just beefs up those calories and it tastes good and it's zingy, but I created um, a citrus profiles to help with the swallow reflex. So there's, um, there is that slight spice, slight um, acid content to help with that, but it also stimulates saliva. So I was doing that also for my head and neck cancer patients so that I could bring a little bit more juice into the mouth to help with that swallow. Um, and it proved to, to be very helpful. So the crackers and dip were great for the head and neck cancer patients. Um, right now, the big 
populations that are really happy about it are the Alzheimer's and dementia populations because we demonstrated in the study hand over hand technique, it allowed them to get involved in eating. And that preparatory phase was, was so important that they're missing when the spoon comes to their mouth. This way, they were actually taking a cracker, they were putting the amount of dip they wanted in it, and in a rhythmic fashion, they were eating it, and kind of, that was the normal recreation of the norm that they were missing with a puree diet, that that involves self-feeding. So with the ALS community, it just it's just you know, blossomed. They really understand how with a rapidly degenerating, degenerating condition, how cravings and, um, you know, loss of enjoyment can really be acutely felt because there's not enough time for adaptation. So here again, uh, two finger grasp and having something that's high protein, high olive oil fat, like good fats in it is actually approaching more the ketogenic diet. So Good. I, you just, you did amazing there. Thank you. You hit like all these really great populations that we work with that we will struggle with on making recommendations on um, appropriate food sources as these things progress or change. And so it's, it's nice to know that there are more options out there. That's really helpful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. The Parkinson's population was another really su big surprise for me because I didn't realize that they need hyperstimulation in the mouth. So when they're having a puree, it's almost that their tongue just keeps on rolling and rolling and they don't move to the next step. But when we have the crackers with the Parkinson's patients, it kind of tripped the tongue to move to the next step because they felt that texture, they felt that crunch. And it just seemed to help with the swallow, the speed of, of eating and then swallowing. So that was really mind blowing for me. I mean, I, I thought that was super cool. So I love to watch people eat. So <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. All right. Well, Reva, thank you so much for coming on and talking about your innovation, your collaboration, and your passion for watching people eat. <laughs> You're in good company. <laughs> yes, I, I really thank you for inviting me on the show. It was super fun. And, um, and every time I, I do these kind of things, I learn a lot as well. So I appreciate it. All right. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks for listening to another edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. Show notes with links to resources mentioned in the episode are posted on speechuncensored.com. I'd love for you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a thoughtful review on Apple Podcasts. Shout out to the hardworking team at speechtherapypd.com for their sweet editing skills and for sponsoring ASHA CEU credit for this episode. And finally, I'd like to leave you with my wish for you to nourish your mind so that your practice can flourish. <laughs>